the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, Glory, America. Bonjour, high Kennedy. Hugh Hewitt live inside the Beltway. Very familiar to Dr. Michael Oren, former ambassador of Israel to the United States, former deputy minister. He's like a road group, a road tour of a rock and roll band. I don't know where he is today, but I'm glad he's back with us. Good morning, Dr. Oren. Thank you for being back. Um, yesterday, I mentioned to you the book, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. It's by Daniel Gordas, not Daniel Oren. You're on my mind so much. I'm sorry about that. But reading it today, I got three segments with you, and I want to discuss three things. The weight of history on Israel, what happens in Gaza afterwards, and what happens in Gaza afterwards. First, the weight of history. In Gordas, it's become obvious to me that Israel goes from crisis to crisis in its 75-year history and always overcorrects and doesn't always anticipate how evil evil can be. Am I right about that? Are you still living with the burdens of 1973 and being surprised? And will this surprise cripple Israel for a decade or more? Good morning, Hugh. Good morning from Houston. Tomorrow's going to be in Philadelphia. The day after, and the day after, you get me in Denver. We're almost finished with this. If I can finish this, I can do a presidential campaign. Um, good morning. Well, a lot of heavy questions on the morning. Listen, I'll start with this. You know, uh, you know Jeff Goldberg, the the, uh, yes, the, the Atlantic. Atlantic. And every 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 time we every time we had a you know a a, a bout with Hamas. Every time we had one of these small wars with Hamas, um, Jeff would call me up and said, I get the tactic, but what's the strategy? And my response to him was, Jeff, you don't get it. The tactic is the strategy. What does it mean? All right, we're surrounded by a sea of people who hate us and want to destroy us, a true existential threat. I don't know if the United States ever faced this existential threat. We face it on a daily basis. And we have to attack. We have to fight back. And every couple of years, we have to try to convince these people who want to destroy us that trying to destroy us is not a good idea, that it's going to cost them mightily when they try it. And you do this again and again. With the Egyptians, we had to do it, what, four times? And after the fourth time, you know, a leader came along, Anwar Sadat, and said, OK, enough of this. This isn't working. We're not throwing these people in the sea. Let's make peace with them. Uh, the Jordanians tried to do it twice. And so along came King Hussein and said, OK, enough of this. We're going to try to do something different. We're going to make peace. And the same thing true with the Abraham Accord countries. Now, there's some people who haven't gotten the memo, uh, particularly <laughs> the Palestinians. And so we're going to have to keep every couple of years, we're going to have to remind them the way we're reminding them now that you know, attacking us is not a good idea. And, you know, you know, people say to me all the time, well, aren't you going to be creating more terrorists? Aren't you going to be creating more terrorists? I mean, if you had that logic, you know, the United States never would have World War II. Hey, we're not going to go against Nazi Germany. You're going to create more Nazis. Right. Yes, maybe, but we're going to have to remind them. Now, here's, that's the tactic. What's the strategy? The strategy is, in between these wars, we develop one of the most successful nation states on the planet. We don't stay in one place. They stay in one place. They stay in the gutter. 
but we developed the state of Israel. And that's the strategy. And the strategy is to keep on developing the state of Israel, to keep on you know, building this extraordinary nation state, which is successful in every field you can imagine, um, and keep on reminding them every couple of years. Now, this is a particularly severe bout. It's a very severe bout. And now on to your second question. So now you know that the tactic is the strategy. Um, and there's no, there's no magic fix there. It may take who knows how many generations. But uh, where were we surprised? Yes, we were surprised. You know why we were surprised? Because we, like you, are human beings. We're part of the same civilization. And our civilizations have a hard time wrapping our heads around pure evil. It has to really stare at it. Look, you know, I talk about that great line by, uh, by, by General Eisenhower, the, 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 the fury of an aroused democracy. Uh, look how long it took for the United States to be aroused to, to evil in the world. And we're, we're very similar. We're part of the same civilization. And here I was working on, on Gaza. I was in charge of Gaza for the government. And, you know, I'm dealing with Gaza. Even I didn't understand the depth of the evil of Hamas. I don't think any rational human being could understand or predict the pure bestial behavior of these terrorists on October 7th. Oh, every Nothing time they, every time I think they've hit bottom, they dig a basement and fall into it. They showed the 45 minute video to the children hostages. That, that's how depraved they are. And I asked Haviv Redegur this morning, is Sinwar mad? Is he insane? And he says he's not. What do you think? No, he's not. I agree with Haviv. Put it this way. The, the, the Hamas terrorists did things that not even the Nazis did. Remember, the Nazis you know, kept their final solution secret. They wouldn't let it be filmed because they understood that even the, the most vicious Jew hater in Nazi Germany would have a trouble with, with, with the gas chambers, would have covers with, with the execution pits. So they wouldn't let it be filmed. These guys, the terrorists, they, they, they live streamed their atrocities. They knew they were playing to, an, to, to, to a very excited audience. They were calling up their, you know, their parents and saying, look, mom, dad, I just killed 10 Jews with my own hands. Aren't you proud of me? Can you imagine any other civilization like that? Even yeah, Nazi you know, Germany. Even Nazi I got to ask you. I got to ask you about historians. You are a historian's historian. People don't know this. They may have forgotten it. You've won all the prizes. You taught at Princeton. You're Dr. Oren because you're a Ph.D. in history. Yesterday, Tom Holland, whom I have a great deal of respect for and have interviewed, introduced a podcast he was doing with William Dalrymple, who I have a lot of respect for. He's a great historian. And William Dalrymple was going to talk how Arthur Balfour is the original problem here. That is so stupid. How do people come to, you know, the Romans are the original problem here. They destroyed the Second Temple. But what, how, what do you do with your colleagues in the field of history who are so propagandized that they can't get back to their professional credibility? Yeah, Listen, you, you know, it's called it's called uh, reductionism, right? You're always going to find something that was the original cause. Um, and, you know, <laughs> what was it? Yeah, I guess the Romans, they actually, you know, they changed the name of the country to Palestine, if you remember. Um, Jesus never heard the word Palestine. Jesus was crucified 100 years before the Romans changed the name. Um, and it, I, always, I always feel it's kind of strange that people refer to, you know, Palestine in the times of Jesus. It, it didn't happen. Uh, yeah, you can always look for first causes. But uh, it could have been the other way around. Think about, think about the alternative history. If the Arabs had welcomed the Jews to the Middle East, and if the Jews had been able to share with this very backward part of the world, uh, part of what we had learned over the course of centuries in terms of science, in terms of development, in terms of water reclamation, think about how much that all would have changed. But instead, uh, they waged war on us. They simply did. 
You know, the Palestinians hold the world record, the world record, Hugh, for people who have been offered a two-state solution and have turned it down with violence. Not just turned it down. That was the British offer in 37, the UN offer in 47, the American-Israeli offer of 2000, 2001, the Israeli order of 2008. It goes on and on and on. You know, one has to sort of, at, at, at some point, you have to sort of say to yourself, wait a minute, they're telling us something. They're telling us something. Why is nobody listening? And uh, you could give a completely different history based on the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration, instead of seeing being the cause of all the evil, could have been yet another great opportunity missed by the Palestinians. We'll come back to that in the first part of our break. I'm going to talk to you about post-war, when Sinwar is gone and they've all left. What about demilitarization? And when you come back, we're going to talk about what about rebuilding and who administers it? But before we do, the Hatzala campaign that you are working for, rescueisrael.org, how is it faring? It is amazing. The outpouring of, of love and support uh, for, the, for the people of Israel, for the, for the health and caring of people of Israel, because that's what Hatzala does, has just been so rewarding for me, Hugh, uh, coming at such a dark time. Now, I understand that you, know, you have contributed to it. We've had other people who aren't Jewish contributing to it. Jewish community that I meet, uh, everyone's frightened, everyone's scared. Um, I've come to a very radical conclusion that, you know, that the Holocaust never really ended. I mean, the gas chambers ended, Nazi Germany ended, but not the, the, the mass dehumanization of Jews, which is what's going I, I on I think here. they've miscalculated, Ambassador. I think Sinmar has miscalculated completely on the impact of a massacre on the civilized world. We may not see it because social media is being manipulated by Iran and by Hamas, but I don't think anyone can come away other than feeling grief for and allegiance to Israel if they're at all balanced. Well, that's the big question. How many people actually are balanced and have moral clarity? And that's that's a rarity today. That's why I call my substack clarity, by the way. It's the high. It's, it's the it's the it's the characteristic that I most admire in thinkers and in statespeople is clarity because it's so rare. How often you have, have you have a on your on your show? Yes. He's, he, he's a clear thinker. Oh, my. I, yes. I, I so, yeah. Oh. yeah he's, he's amazing. He's, he's, he's a clear thinker. And they're rare. You, 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 know, you, you know a clear thinker when you meet one, too. It's amazing. Ah, this guy sees. I'll quote you. I, I'll be unusual. I'll be a Jew who will quote from the New Testament. One of my favorite lines is from Corinthian, where uh, Paul writes that we all see through the world as if through a glass darkly. Because, you know, Roman glass was dark. And there are very few people who can see through a glass darkly and see the realities of the world. Well, I think you and Haviv are the two that I go to for that. We're going to come back during the break. Uh, the Salem yeah. News Channel's got to take a break. The radio network's got to take a break. I'll put this part on the podcast. Stay tuned, America. Dr. Oren will be back after the break here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. I am back with Dr. Oren. This will air on the podcast. Dr. Oren, I have the Sapir article that you've written for their special edition October and November. And I don't know if that's available online yet. I have actually never heard of Sapir before. Tell me what Sapir is. Sapir is a, 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 a journal edited by Brett Stevens. Oh. Um, and it's a very high-level um, high article for people who are involved in Israel, involved in Jewish affairs. It's, it's really meant almost for communal leaders to get a really sense. And um, it's an excellent platform. Well, yeah, I had Marsha Blackburn on this morning, and the senator had not had any briefing from the State Department about what happened after Gaza is liberated from Hamas. And I don't know that the State Department has even thought to read your article. Do you think anyone is thinking about how to prevent a repeat of Hamas returning in any way, shape or form to Gaza? 
I hope so. I mean, there's lots of talk in, in Washington about moving the Palestinian Authority to Gaza, and that's probably the best prescription you're going to have for getting Hamas back, right? Because you remember the, the, the Palestinian Authority, um, deeply corrupt, deeply unpopular, uh, lasted about a year and a half as the de facto government of Gaza before it was overthrown by Hamas, remember, in 2007. So, uh, and that's with tremendous American backing. Oh, my God. There was a whole mili military mission there, the Dayton mission. Uh, that tried to train the Palestinian police. That training, you know, gave them about a week of resistance. Uh, so you know, I think that's not a great idea. So this article, I have an article out today in Sapir that talks about the day after, and uh, it looks like this. Uh, first of all, you have to demilitarize the Gaza Strip. No more rockets, no more rocket factories. You have to internationalize the Gaza Strip. It's not just Israel's problem and Egypt's problem. It is a global problem. It's certainly a Western problem. That's what those American aircraft carriers are doing in the Middle East now, because Gaza is an international problem. You should have an international force there with a very large inter-Arab component. You should have a cordon sanitaire around Gaza. Should, no what is the Philadelphia line that you referred to? I've never heard of that before. Oh. Uh, Philadelphia was the line dividing Egypt from, uh, from the Gaza Strip. And Israel so maintained that at uh, one time? Israel patrolled that? that until, until, the, until, until the withdrawal until 2005. Now, what's happened is, you know, what can I say? Our, our, our dear friend, the Egyptians, their, their army is rather porous. And Egyptian officers have been, uh, how should I say, induced to let vast, vast quantities of armaments into Gaza. Where do they get all the guns? Welcome back, America. I'm back with Dr. Michael Oren. His article in Sapir Journal is a must-read, sapirjournal.org, I believe. Yep, sapirjournal.org. Uh, Dr. Oren, you and I both know that the number one guy in the Gulf states is MBZ and the number one guy in Saudi Arabia is MBS. Either or both of them, if they took over Gaza and used their resources, could have a legacy that would endure through the ages. Will either of them do that? Um, I wouldn't rule it out. I would not rule it out. And why not? Everyone's interested in stability. They, the, 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 both the Saudis and the Emiratis are frightened of, of Sunni extremism in the form of the Muslim Brotherhood, in the form of ISIS, and in the form of Hamas. They're similarly frightened of Shiite extremism in the form of Iran and Hezbollah. There's only one country in the world that's fighting both of them, and that's Israel. And uh, yes, they'll have an interest in a stable uh, Gaza. Why get dragged into conflict after conflict by Hamas? And so why not cooperate in, in, in preventing that from happening? So the inter-Arab force would be an important part of any, any component, any international force that would take over Gaza. Um, you have to rebuild the infrastructure. They have no infrastructure, water, uh, water reclamation, desalinization, electricity. You need all of that. Housing, you need all of that. So that they would play a very crucial role. But I think the big question, and the question I, I struggle with, okay, who, who are going to be the Palestinians who are going to be in control of Gaza, Gaza? Right now, according to the polls, 83% of the West Bank Palestinians support Hamas. 65% of the displaced Palestinians in Gaza still support Hamas. All right, so who are you going to put in there? Keeping in mind that we, can't, we can destroy Hamas, but we can't kill the idea of Hamas. No more than we can kill the idea of ISIS or Al-Qaeda. We can weaken it. We can degrade it a lot. We're going to have to find a Palestinian leadership, and this is going to be very hard, that actually cares more about its own people than it cares about killing our people. And that, really, go find that. Uh, well, I, I am reminded box, that you know, the, the Emirati Special Forces fought alongside of American Special Forces in Afghanistan, 
for decades, for decades. So they've got the ability to police. I don't know that they have the ability to persuade. Do they? We're not about persuasion here. <laughs> we're about we're about keeping the peace. Okay, and, uh, you're not going to you're not going to persuade a bad man. You're going to deter a bad man, and uh, that's what it's about. You know, you can't this this talk. And you know, the administration has been talking about moving the PA. You know, maybe Mahmoud Abbas. Mahmoud Abbas. You know, in the 18th year of his four year term, um, who people forget you uh, exactly one month before October 7th, September 7th, he gave one of the most anti-Semitic speeches in history. You know, blame the Jews for the Holocaust. There's, there's a leader. There's a presumptive peace partner. Uh, and uh, and most recently, he has accused the IDF of perpetrating the massacres of October 7th. And now senior officials of the PA are not only praising the atrocities, they're saying, hey, our guys took part, part in them, too. We get we deserve credit. This is right. what we're dealing with. So I've got you know, a, a, a exit question. Ambassador Oren, yesterday the White House got ahead of Israel in saying that the pause was going to be extended. If you were the ambassador yeah. still, your successor, whoever it is, and I don't know who it is, what should they be saying to the White House today about announcing before Israel that Israel has accepted a deal? Um, yeah, don't <laughs> I'd say hold off. I'd say hold off. You're putting us in a corner by doing that. You don't want to put us in a corner and make it seem like we're rejecting or we're backing out of an agreement that has already been achieved. That's uh, that's not it. How should I say this diplomatically? It's not cool to do that. Did you notice that yesterday um, that they had done that? Did that yeah. cross? I, I was surprised. I was surprised that the United States came out before Israel did. There's one other point about Gaza that I have to stress about, about the day after, and that is Israel has to maintain security control. Um, that includes control of the airspace, control of the Internet space. And it means hot pursuit. We have to retain the right of hot pursuit because who knows, you know, we, if we learn that there's a cell that's operating in Khan Yunus and the international force is not interdicting fast enough, our special forces are going to have to do that. Dr. Oren, it's a fine piece. I hope it's got a link on the web pretty soon. I would encourage everyone to go to Sapir. It's called The Day After. At some point, the fighting will end. What comes next? The first time I've seen anyone actually think this through in one place. Good luck. You're in Houston today and then Philadelphia tomorrow. Do you get to go home to Israel after that? Yeah, at Denver. <laughs> oh, Denver. On. One, more, one more stop, Denver. RescueIsrael.org. Why, Rescue. why is your country so big? Why does it have to be so big? Couldn't they get a little smaller? Really? You know, when I do radio <laughs> barnstorming, I don't do that many stops. So good, good on you, Dr. Oren. RescueIsrael.org. Go and contribute no matter who you are. If you're a friend of Israel, go to RescueIsrael.org. Thank you, Dr. Oren. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400.
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway, joined from Jerusalem by Haviv Redigur of the Times of Israel. Good morning, Haviv. Thank you for joining me again. I really appreciate that you do so much American media, from Dan Senor on Monday to MSNBC to my show. I think it's great. You're perhaps one of the most reasonable voices I've heard out there in persuading people about Israel's point of view. Are you doing this for the government, or is this just Aviv saying this helps the hostages and this helps Israel, so I'll do this? Uh, I'm doing it because I'm getting called by uh, your show and uh, MSNBC and... Um, no, I, I, I don't work for the government. I haven't worked for the government uh, ever in my life. And I, uh, I guess I was a soldier once. Um, and um, I, I disagree with a lot of things the government is doing. And in Hebrew, I mostly tweet and complain about the government. Well, I appreciate that you do this because there are a lot of people talking in America who have no idea what they're doing. Let me begin with the hardest question, Aviv. I listened to you and Dan Senor on Call Me Back yesterday. And the first question I wrote down is, there is no happy ending to this situation. There's only a, the least worst ending. What's the very least worst ending of this that you can imagine? Well, there's an incredibly happy ending. Um, Hamas abandons its understanding of us, interpretation of us that, can, that believes that we will magically disappear. We will evaporate. We will move to some random other place in the world and decides to leave Gaza rather than force us to pull it out of Gaza. And uh, Gaza is taken over by moderate uh, Palestinian political forces uh, keen on developing Gaza, not the kleptocracy under Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah. Uh, but there are extraordinarily good, competent, caring uh, leaders in Palestinian politics. They are always pushed aside by the major forces like Hamas, like Fatah. Um, there is a good scenario. And then there are the forces in Palestinian politics that will make sure that good scenario doesn't come about. But those are choices. And that's the choice Hamas makes. Hamas has spent 17 years in control of Gaza and has done nothing but build the underground city in which it is now hiding behind and beneath its civilians. Hamas is nothing other than that. It, it, it literally has no other strategy, no other infrastructure. It did nothing for Gaza except that. Uh, and and if if uh, that changes, if that choice that Palestinian politics has made changes, there are many wonderful scenarios. If uh, President Biden were told that for $10 billion of investment in Palestine, America could put the Palestinians on a radically different trajectory, I suspect he'd find those $10 billion in Congress, and I suspect Congress would find $100 billion to have the Palestinians have that better future. Uh, if this war translates into genuine global empathy and support, for a Palestinian polity that isn't Hamas, there's, that's only a good thing. Habib, is that within the range of possibility? I, I have friends in the UAE. I have friends in Bahrain. I know that there are moderate Gulf states. Elon Musk referred to them yesterday. But they're standing back because it's such a nightmare of poisoned minds. Is there any scenario where you see them stepping forward to run the strip on behalf of the Palestinians until the Palestinians develop a new elite that will do it for them? No. Um, anybody who takes over Gaza after Israel removes Hamas, assuming the war continues the way it has gone, assuming Israel is as implacable as I think it is, and assuming Hamas is removed, 
um, anybody who tries to take over in the immediate aftermath of that will be seen by Palestinians, not just in Gaza. In Gaza, they'll probably like a new regime. They hate Hamas. We have polls on this. Um, but in the West Bank, they love Hamas for what it's doing to Israel. And, and because out of a sense of empathy for Gaza, the West Bank doesn't want what's happening to Gaza to happen in the West Bank. But nevertheless, the Palestinian diaspora, American Palestinian activists, um, have all found ways to support Hamas, despite kind of understanding that in Gaza, the perception is Hamas brought this devastation on them. But anybody who takes over will be seen as taking over um, riding Israeli tanks. In other words, Israel will have be, will be, even if they don't like Israel, even if their politics aren't pro-Israel, they'll be seen as coming in uh, at Israel's behest. Um, no, there, there has to be an indigenous Palestinian political solution after Hamas. Hamas, of course, will fight tooth and nail to prevent anything like that from ever happening. The pause that was extended for two days. I noted yesterday that Qatar and Egypt announced it first, then America announced it, and Israel held back. I, I do not think the United States should be ahead of Israel on any of these announcements. What was your reaction to that? Was that America leaning on Israel to accept the extension of the pause? I don't know if it was America leaning on it so much as um, America being part of sort of the support network that to allow the Israelis to start to consider them. The Israelis have a very simple point, and they've been making it from the start, and it's what the agreement is. If the hostages keep coming out, the ceasefire remains in effect. When the hostages stop coming out, the ceasefire uh, is no longer in effect. Uh, Defense Minister Gallant said yesterday, when the ceasefire ends, the Israeli forces will resume the war on Hamas more strongly than it has been until now. Uh, the Americans have asked us today, and I think the Americans understand that, and I'll tell you why. They asked today, um, or I think they asked yesterday, but it was reported today, that Israel um, act differently in specific ways, not sort of in a generic, please don't kill civilians, okay. which everybody would like to not kill civilians, but in specific ways, create these kinds of humanitarian corridors in the South when the war continues in the South. All these details that lead me to understand that the Americans understand that the war will continue in the South. That's very good news. Do you think this matters to Hezbollah in the North, that they see the implacability of Israel? Do you think that it will deter them not only now, but in the future, from attempting what Hamas actually executed the massacre of Israelis en masse without distinction between child and adult, civilian and military. Is Hezbollah watching and learning, do you think, Haviv Redegur? Absolutely. Um, something even more interesting is happening. Iran has taken steps to ensure control over Hezbollah decision-making so that Hezbollah doesn't accidentally escalate to a point where it faces a war. Iran wants to hold Hezbollah um, in its arsenal, in its quiver, so to speak. The purpose of Hezbollah in Iranian grand strategy is that when the Israel-Iran war turns kinetic, right now it's a bunch of spies and bombs and secrets and cyber, when it turns into a kinetic ground, you know, air war, but, but actual bombardments of each other, Hezbollah is a force multiplier for Iran. And so it doesn't want Hezbollah lost to, for that next war, right? Um, Israel would like Hezbollah not to be a threat in the north. And, and so it doesn't really mind if Hezbollah escalates to the point of a war accidentally. So, yes, I think Hezbollah is deterred. I think Iran is deterred. But it's deterred tactically, not strategically. Strategically, it is doing nothing but building for that next war. 
And all of Lebanon is watching helpless as its fate is being sealed by Hezbollah doing so. Now, we have leadership elites in all of those. Khamenei in the IRGC in Iran. We've got Nasrallah and Hezbollah. And then we have the Sinwar fellow. My first question, is Sinwar mad? I mean, does he actually think he's winning or that this was a good strategy? Or is he just an evil, depraved soul who wants to kill? Or does he actually have intelligence and uh, uh, Hitlerian sort of grasp of tactics and strategy, however flawed they were in the Second World War? Or is he just nuts? Yeah, no, he's a deeply strategic man, uh, a deeply strategic thinker. Um, I, I keep sending people to look at the FLN in Algeria, who uh, in an eight-year war with tremendous terrorism and abuse, kicked out the French colonialists after 130 years. Well over a million French citizens had to leave Algeria in 1962 uh, when the FLN won that war. And and that response to that war among Palestinians was the founding of the PLO. In other words, the, a lot of the Palestinian national movement and, the, and this generation of Palestinian leaders grew up on the example of Algeria kicking out the French. And one of the lessons, two things kicked out the French. One is that the terrorism raised the cost for staying beyond what the French were willing to pay. And the second was that the French military response, the French probably killed half a million people in bombardments of villages and and there were literal torture dungeons established in Algiers um, in which in which FLN fighters were just disappeared into. The French response was so cruel that that cruelty undermined the French ability to explain back in France, back in Paris, what the heck they were doing in Algeria. And so both sides, the 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 cruelty um, imposed by the terrorists and the cruelty forcing the colonialists to be cruel. Both of those things undermine the colonialists. And that's how Sinwar, I think, understands what's going on. He thinks that Israel is going to be weakened by killing our civilians. And he thinks that Israel is going to be weakened by forcing Israel to cut through Palestinian civilians to get to Hamas and not being able to explain that to Israelis. And but there comes a point, him. Aviv, I heard you make the argument about the yeah. French analogy before, and I've been reading Daniel Gordis's book on Israel, and I know a lot more about Zionism now. There is no France for the Frenchmen to go to. The Israelis can't go anywhere. That's where I see it breaking down. Does Sinwar think, really think he can move Israel? Yes, he thinks that. And it's... It's the tragedy of Palestinian of the Palestinian cause for a century. They have been talking about us since before they called themselves Palestinians. If you go back, you know, in 1914, you have these newspapers where they talk about themselves as Palestinians. But 10 years before that, they, they don't really. It's just how borders were drawn. I'm not making a statement about Palestinian identity or nationalism. But I'm just saying that for, for 100 years, literally since the 1910s, they have seen Jews immigrate very slowly, very gradually. And they have talked about us as colonialists and understood us as imperialists and understood us in all these words and all this verbiage. And and they never really developed a theory of mind of us. They don't really think of us as people who think and feel and experience. They think of us as this kind of, in 30 years of peace talks, no Palestinian leader has ever spoken to the Israeli people. Um, Hamas has a theory of why we will be destroyed. It doesn't actually have an th- understanding of our internal politics and experience. So, for example, what do the Palestinians not understand about their anti-colonial strategy of terrorism? They don't understand that roughly 800,000 Israeli Jews 
if they go back to where they came from or where their grandparents came from, would be going back to Baghdad. Now, I don't think they've had or that Yemen. conversation with a Baghdadi. Or, or, or Yemen. Yeah. Or, it's or, half of us would be going back to the Arab world. Pause yeah. right there for a second, and, Aviv. And, I've got to take yeah. a break for the Salem News Channel and, and the radio network, and I'll be right back with Haviv Redigur. Follow him on X, the site known as Twitter. i got to talk to him about Elon Musk. i got to talk to him a lot about But I'm going to come back and talk to him during the break about the BBC. We'll put it all on the podcast. We'll be back on the radio and the Salem News Channel in just a moment. Stay tuned while I take this break with Haviv Redigur. We'll continue, and we'll put it on the podcast so you'll hear it all, and I'll play it later in the program or tomorrow in the program. Stay tuned, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back. I'm talking with Haviv Redigur. Haviv, people that I admire and respect, very smart people, people like William Dalrymple, who's been in my studio, and I've spent hours talking about him, about Afghanistan. He posted yesterday, or Tom Holland posted, a note that this is all began with Arthur Balfour. That's so ignorant. It began with the Romans destroying the Second Temple. But I, I don't know what to do about this when smart people say stupid things about Israel. How do you respond to that? What do you put that, attribute that to? If you believe that the affairs of the world are set down by tiny elites sipping champagne in, you know, halls of power in, in Geneva, um, then you think that Balfour created the Jewish state because the British government, because of politics having to do with the Americans in World War I, wanted, and a little bit of anti-Semitism, wanted to get rid of its Jews, created the Jewish state. The Zionist movement wasn't, imperialist Britain didn't give the Zionist movement the territory. It it, it was used by the Zionist movement. And when Russia, uh, the Jews were fleeing Russia, the Zionist movement used what are called the capitulations during the Ottoman periods, which are, which are immunities given to Russian citizens in the Ottoman Empire to advance Zionism. And when German Jews showed up, they used German, whatever they could, they used whatever was available. Small nations trying to survive will use whatever international politics they can to try to survive. And if you then conclude that international politics created them, well, that's very silly. By the time the UN voted in 1947 to establish a state of Israel, the Jews were not moving anywhere. And the Jews of the Arab world were about to be kicked out en masse in the most perfect ethnic cleansing of the 20th century to almost the very last man, woman, and child across 20 countries. And and so you think that if the UN hadn't voted that way, what what would have happened to these people? They would have evaporated, disappeared. Nobody would have had to think about them. Uh, the the Jews kept in the DP camps after World War II for three years. They're behind barbed wire, right? American high school kids are taught that the Americans showed up and liberated everybody. But Israeli Jews know that their grandparents were still behind barbed wire on German soil three years later, and that barbed wire was patrolled by British and American soldiers because the world didn't want them, so they had nowhere to go. The Jews created Israel. The world didn't want the Jews, and the Jews' response was Israel. And no, it wasn't Arthur Balfour. Is there any way to teach that effectively given not just social media, but the general collapse of the willingness to learn history apart from identity politics now? Habib, I know that. You know that. I'll bet you not one percent. We have a minute to coming back and rejoining the network. I'm Israeli. I was raised to think that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. I don't know how to teach the world. I know me and I'm not going anywhere. 
That is well said. Stand by. We'll be right back because I got a lot to ask you about the adult Gazans and their complicity. I've got to ask you about your your comment to Dan Senor on Call Me Back yesterday that war is not math. And I believe that's very important for people to understand at this point. War is not math. Things can go very wrong or very right. But Israel is being as restrained as possible. Stand by. I'll be back with Aviv Redigur right after this. Welcome back, America. I've still got Haviv Redigur from Jerusalem. Haviv, um, adult Gazans, how complicit are they in the terrorism they are inflicting on the Israeli hostages? I'm thinking about somebody's got baby kafir if the baby is alive, and they're not turning them over. How complicit is every adult in Gaza with this horror? There is no question that every adult is not complicit. There is no question that huge numbers of Gazans are absolutely the victims of this moment, profoundly victimized by Hamas. Hamas murders, Hamas oppresses. The victims, the, the, the hostages, include Muslim young men and young women uh, who have been held incommunicado for 52 days. Uh, Aisha al-Ziadne is a 17-year-old Israeli Muslim Bedouin girl held by Hamas for the last 52 days with no sign of life. There is no question that Hamas is as much an enemy. Uh, you know, I think Hamas is an enemy of the Palestinian cause in sort of grand strategic ways. But individually, specifically, it is a horrific oppressive, disastrous, murderous organization to Palestinians. And we have polls from October 6th, literally the day before, that showed that Palestinians uh, despise Hamas, not for any issue having to do with Israelis, just for its own internal oppression in Gaza. Having said that, there is huge support among Palestinians, uh, ordinary Palestinians, for the October 7 massacre. There is huge support for inflicting pain on the Israelis. There is huge support uh, for uh, holding hostages to get out Palestinian prisoners. Um, and, and, and that is true. And that has always been true. The Palestinian political world doesn't have another story. There are essentially two ways that nations have achieved independence, uh, liberation, what have you, in the 20th century and in the 21st century. One way was anti-colonial terrorism, and it worked. It worked in some places. It worked spectacularly. That is the path the Palestinians have chosen disastrously for them year after year after year, generation after generation. There is the other way, which is nonviolence, nonviolence that robs the enemy of their excuses, Robs, in this case, it would rob the Israelis of the explanation for the military rule in the West Bank, for example. That path the Palestinians have never chosen. Uh, there have been very small movements within the Palestinians that have tried the things like that, but they've always happened alongside massive sustained violence. So it doesn't work on the Israelis if, if it's a tiny movement next to a massively violent one. Um, the only story the Palestinians have to tell about themselves is that story of massive terrorism and violence. I, I want to if I may, I'm sorry to talk so long, but I want to say one more thing. The Palestinians are having trouble getting away from Hamas's strategy, from terrorism as a liberation strategy, no matter how much it fails them. And the reason is what economists call the sunk costs problem. Yep. The sunk cost problem is when you have invested so much in one direction that to change direction becomes impossible, even if it's failing. This is true of companies and this is true of national movements. And so if it's true that terrorism can't work on us because we have nowhere to run away to. The whole anti-colonial premise doesn't, you want to call me a colonialist as a curse, fine, enjoy it. But it tactically, it won't work. If that's true, then every martyr, as they call them, shaheed, every act 
that has ever been, every single suicide bomber the Palestinians have ever produced has something named for them, some street, some soccer field in Palestine. Every one of those stories becomes a story of, of folly and stupidity and murder instead of wow. heroic martyrdom and liberation. And so to not wow. lose, to not all the sacrifices of the Palestinian story become empty and stupid. They have to. You know, I've to never thought of sunk costs in this context. Megan McArdle wrote a great book on this, The Upside of Down, uh, a few years ago that made me think about sunk costs in almost every situation, but I've never thought about it in this situation before. And that makes it very difficult to change. I saw that Hamas, and I try and use the analogy of Gestapo because Americans culturally understand what it is. Their Gestapo operated in the West Bank on the weekend and executed two Palestinians on the West Bank in rather horrific fashion. How deep is the Gestapo, the enforcement of Hamas in the West Bank, Aviv? In the West Bank, it's a it's a collection of um, scattered militias deeply disrupted by Israel that occasionally can produce a terror attack, occasionally can take over some neighborhood in some Palestinian city, but don't actually have the capacity to do more than sort of pin, pinpoint terrorize. The point of those deaths of those two young men, um, by the way, we have we have no evidence that they were actually um, uh, in any way informants on Israel. Um, there are a lot of Palestinians who hate Hamas, and they inform on Hamas to Israel, not because they love Israel. Um, but we don't know anything about that. We, we've tried to find out. It's all intelligence. Who knows what we could even find out if it were true, but we, we don't have any evidence. But the point, even if they were not actually, the point that Hamas is making is this is what will be done if you are an informant. So it was an attempt to terrorize the Palestinian population. When, when you are a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Hold that thought. I got to come back. Every problem it's never had, including in Palestinian society, it's solved with terrorism. One more break, and I'm going to come back and ask Habib during the break, is there an Adenauer anywhere in Palestine? Because that is, to me, I got to ask him about war is not math as well. I'll get two more questions in with Habib, and I'll try and trap him into coming back again and again and again. But he's doing he's doing Israel's uh, best work. Uh, Dr. Warren and Habib Rediger are doing Israel's best work in the American media. And it's important because it's slipping here. It's slipping almost every day I can see it slip. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be right back. And Habib Rediger, well, all of it will be broadcast. So stay tuned. I'm back with Habib Rediger. Habib, yesterday in the Dan Senor podcast, call me back. You noted that international law benefits the powerful. That's absolutely true. I took it. I teach it. I know exactly what it does. You're absolutely correct about that. It does. And so I reject all the proportionality arguments by people who don't know what they're saying or the context. But I do wonder whether or not there's someone who might not return Palestine and Adenauer to the nations that benefit from international law. Because if they ever did, there would be arguments that could be made about how much of the West Bank they should receive in the final allotment of the two state solution. If there is a two state solution, is there an Adenauer? Is there anyone like that? Uh, a Yoshida? Anybody? that you can identify, or does identifying them endanger them? No, there have been. There have been. Um, uh, there was a gentleman named Salem Fayyad, a World Bank economist, a professor at University of Texas, uh, who became prime minister of the Palestinian Authority briefly. Uh, America supported him. He uh, began to root out corruption. He began to create a serious um, and responsible budget. Uh, and he began to build out the institutions of statehood 
um, and he was very quickly uh, pushed out of Palestinian politics by the forces that be, essentially because he was trying to weaken uh, the regime and establish something more liberal and more open uh, in the West Bank. Uh, it's important to remember that while Hamas is this horrific, uh, oppressive regime, Mahmoud Abbas is a slightly less horrific, slightly less oppressive, but nevertheless, pretty terrible, oppressive regime. Um, and so Salam Fayyad was someone who, when he ran in an election, I believe he won something like 3% of the vote. Um, voting among the Palestinians is something that doesn't happen often. It, it follows uh, tribal lines and clan lines and, and, and religious loyalty lines. And so it's not really a healthy democratic uh, world in that sense that we can really measure by our standards, um, both Israeli or American standards. So there are such people. There are activists, phenomenal activists. I, I won't name them because if I name them, uh, it'll only hurt their PR. But there are activists on the ground working on um, working on building out civil society. I once spoke with a Palestinian activist, uh, no fan of Israel, spent some time in an Israeli jail, who said to me, I can't come to peace talks with you. I can't even sit at the table because when we sign something, I don't have the state institutions to implement it and ensure it and control it. I have to build out my society. I'll meet you at that table in 20 years and I'll be stronger and you'll be sorry because he'll negotiate, squeeze more out of me, right? That that was how he put it, me being Israel, not me, Chaviv. And, and, um, and he goes around the West Bank establishing uh, literally women's knitting circles, literally just walking around the West Bank establishing civil society because you can't trust the West Bank leadership of the of, of the Palestinian Authority. Uh, of course, you can't trust Hamas. And so what he is doing is actually going around trying to establish a social life, a, a civil society in Palestine that can build that can be built out. Uh, there are such people. And I have they one last question under be, Hamas and Fatah. And I have five minutes for you to answer it in. So I want to give you the time. You said yesterday to Dan, war is not math. And you cited Pickett's charge. And I had just seen Napoleon. I thought about water. I thought about every big battle ever. What did you mean and what do you want, especially an American audience, to understand when they look at Gaza that war is not math? When you uh, – there are two sides in war. Or sometimes there are six sides. But let's imagine a war between two sides. Each side is trying to surprise the other. That's fundamental. That's what's actually happening. And when I say each side is trying to surprise the other, I mean that if you would build the war one way, if you're fighting the last war, armies are usually fighting the previous war. In the next war, the enemy is going to try in every way to surprise you. So, for example, the Israelis revealed uh, to the world and to their enemies that when they uh, kill too many uh, civilians on the other side, uh, in the Grapes of Wrath operation in Lebanon during Prime Minister Shimon Peres's time, uh, there was a UN compound bombed and dozens of people were killed. And the Israeli strike was, you know, not, it was supposed to, it was an accident. It, that wasn't the target. But nevertheless, um, there, was, um, there was this UN compound built and that essentially ended the Israeli war effort because massive international pressure came to play. Once civilians, Palestinian civilians, were proven to be a major limit on Israeli war fighting, they became the heart of Palestinian military strategy. And that's why Hamas has, according to its own leadership, hundreds of kilometers of tunnels and bunkers under Gaza. And so war changes based on how the enemy changes, right? Um, and how the enemy uh, conducts itself. That's how the war will be shaped. In other words, Hamas right now is trying to carry out a terrorist strategy as a government. Uh, 
It is trying to be a terror group, attacking the enemy, hiding behind civilians, but it actually controls territory and it actually runs that territory and controls and really owns that economy. And it controls and owns that economy in a way that has done nothing but bend the entire economy to Gaza to creating this massive underground network that forces the other side to cut through the civilian population in order to win the war. Okay, Hamas has essentially made the heart of its strategy massive Palestinian death toll if Israel ever tries to come for it. Until October 7th, um, and this was my argument, there was nothing that the Israelis could imagine that Hamas could do that would make Israel pay that cost, pay that cost in Palestinian lives, which you don't have to believe Israelis are good people, translates into a massive diplomatic and international cost for Israel. Israel couldn't imagine taking on that cost um, for anything. For There is no danger that Hamas could pose. After October 7th, that was no longer true. In other words, Hamas made Palestinian deaths its essential strategy. That's what that underground tunnel system is about. No terror group in the history of the world was capable of building that because it wasn't also a state lit and government and, you know, city state kind of situation like Hamas has. So this is a unique foe. No army in history has ever faced a foe quite like this. That was kind of a terror group in some ways, but a government and army in other ways. And that combination means that Palestinian civilians are the shield. But Hamas came out from behind those Palestinian civilians, did something that makes us no longer able to tolerate it as a threat at any cost. If we incur massive international sanctions, we're still going to destroy Hamas. After October 7th, we can't afford not to. And so that combination has turned Gaza's civilian population into into a devastated place. I mean, there are many large parts of Gaza City that are just literally uninhabitable. But the war effort will continue until Hamas is gone. And so they have created a whole new kind of battlefield. If you assess the civilian death toll in Gaza only by comparing it to Mosul, to the American operation against ISIS in Mosul, we're not quite caught up to that. It's, it, we don't even know the death toll from Mosul. It's anywhere between 10,000 to 40,000. But if you compare, that was over nine months, right? The Americans... When they chased after the ISIS fighters, they, they tried to avoid in the city. They tried to avoid in buildings, and they tried to find them above ground. But they could They dug a few tunnels but and they bunkers. Couldn't. They could. I am, we can't I'm on a hard out, so I've just got to say yeah. thank you. I hope you will keep coming back. I want people to go listen to you on Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast yesterday, and please keep coming back. I greatly appreciate it. I think you do just about as good a job as anyone else I've heard in explaining the reality of what is going on in Gaza today and why Israel must do what it is doing. Thank you, Haviv Redigur. Follow him on X at Haviv Redigur. Read him in the Times of Israel online for free. Thank you, Haviv. Thank you. But General Ishimo is on the road already, which helps him with his MyPhDWeightLoss.com, I assume. Great sponsors of our show. Uh, Dwayne lost 50 pounds uh, 16 months ago, uh, and he did it the old-fashioned way with nutrition, counseling, and change of diet, and MyPhDWeightLoss.com makes it work. You can call them at 864-644-1900. That's 864-644-1900. And we always say it three times, 864-644-1900. But if he's got chips in the front seat, that's not a good way. Generalissimo, if you're listening as you drive right now, they put the chips away, throw them, don't throw them out the window. That, that would be littering. Wouldn't want you pulled over for littering. 
but the Pringles can put that away. Beef jerky, I think, is okay unless it has sugar in it. I don't know. I'm sure that my PhDWeb.com has a plan for when you're driving long distances. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee is one of our regular go-to guests. Good morning, Senator. How are you this morning? I am well. Thank you did, so much. Did you have a great Thanksgiving? We had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Lots of children, grandchildren, cousins, cousin juniors, as we call them. Lots of fun with the Cousin family. juniors. I love that term. Uh, Senator, people who did not have a good Thanksgiving are career military officers, and there are thousands of them and their dependents who have not had their promotions and reassignments allowed to go forward because of Senator Tuberville. I'm told by Senator Cruz last week that a resolution is in sight this week. Is that your understanding as well? I know that Senator Tuberville is working to find a resolution to this issue. There are many, and I was on post recently at Fort Campbell, and I know this is an issue of concern for men and women who have who are looking for those promotions uh, to move into positions that where we need them, whether it's with CENTCOM or whether it is one of the posts that is there in the Middle East or over in uh, the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we want to make certain that our military is ready to execute their mission. And take care of the families. I know some families who have been stuck in limbo, not able to move their families, not able to move their children, get them into new schools as they wait to move. And it does have this impact on readiness and especially on retention. Uh, When you get to be a lieutenant colonel or a colonel in the Army, the Air Force or the Space Force or the Marines or a commander or a captain in the Navy, you begin to look and wonder, should I get out at 20 years? And I don't want them to get out. We need them to stay. They're our best and they've served for a long time. But I think Senator Cruz is optimistic about this uh, standing resolution. It's not a change to the Senate rules, which is a bad thing to do, but a standing resolution. Is that something you've got on your radar yet? Uh, I know that Senator Tuberville is continuing to work to find a resolution to this. You do have the standing order that is going to be up for consideration. I think before that happens, you'll probably see a um, a resolution to to this issue. Oh, I hope so. I really do. Now, let me turn to Israel. Yesterday, the White House got ahead of Israel in saying that they had accepted an extension of the pause. I know Israel's going to resume the offensive as soon as Hamas stops turning over hostages. And I hope they do. What did you think of of the White House getting ahead of Israel yesterday, Senator Blackburn? One of the things we learned from that is the White House is more involved in this than they have wanted to publicly admit. And maybe they got out a little ahead of their skis on this. Uh, They want to say on one hand that Israel has the lead, but when they make statements like this, it shows that they're interjecting themselves more. And as we look at how this moves forward, what we need to do is make certain that we continue to support Israel, that we support Israel's ability to defend themselves and their people, and that we continue the military sales program that we have had with them. You know, if you 
when you look at um, what has developed with the Iron Dome, with David Sling, with the laser technology that is currently being used, these are asymmetrical battle instruments, and whether you're using them there or in some other place on the globe, uh, for a, a country to be able to defend themselves, uh, it is important that we we move forward with that type of innovation in the battlefront. And, um, of course, you're beginning to see more emphasis being placed on that. I would say the other thing that comes from this, uh, the way we deal with Israel, our allies need to know that we are going to be there. We're going to be rock solid with them, and our enemies need to fear us. And that is something that this administration seems and appears to have lost sight of. Um, I, I think they would feel that you can appease your way or negotiate your way to every desired income, every desired outcome. And you and I know that is not something that's going to be a possibility, especially when you begin to squish on where your posture is when it comes to uh, global participation and global decisions. Now, Senator Blackburn, next time I'm going to ask Senator Cotton about this because he's on armed services and intel. And uh, But I want to know your thoughts. I've asked Habib Redeger, who's a superb journalist from Israel, talked to him from Jerusalem this morning. I'll ask Dr. Michael Oren, our former ambassador from Israel to the United States, next hour as well, about after the war, after Hamas is destroyed or at least flee Gaza, there's a reconstruction effort there. Habib Redeger is hopeful the Americans will vote significant aid to the restoration of Gaza, provided that the correct people are in place to administer that. I know the United Arab Emirates has declined to get in mind. At least I've read that. I don't know it for sure. Is there anybody out there that you are aware of whom you would trust to administer American funds in Gaza after the war? What we do know is we can't trust the U.N., to go in and and do this. They Agreed. have proven themselves to be incapable. Uh, so let's take them off the table from the get-go. When you have the UN employing a pediatrician who is cheering the beheading of babies, the killing of babies, when you have UN teachers that are praising Uh, a teen that killed an Israeli as a young uh, lion. These are things that are unacceptable. When you know the UN has hired people that are affiliated with Hamas, this is a problem. Now, how we end up looking at a governance structure, I don't know what the answer to that is going to be. I don't think, Hugh, I don't think anybody right now knows exactly what that answer is going to be. What we do know is if you want to stabilize Gaza and uh, you want to make certain that those who are refugees, those that are impoverished, have uh, humanitarian aid, the best way to do that is to rid Gaza of Hamas. 
Well, I agree with that, but but we do have to, and I don't know if the State Department has sent anyone over yet. I don't know that they have any expertise in this, but we did the reconstruction of Germany and Japan. We know you've got to have a CEDAR or a, an overseer of all the, and it can't be the UN, and it can't be Hamas, and it can't be the Palestinian Authority. There are, two of them are corrupt, and one of them is evil through and through. But has anyone come from a foggy bottom to say, hey, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, hey, Senate Armed Services, we have a plan? Does anyone have a plan in the United States government? Uh, To my knowledge, there has been no one that has come to the Hill and said, after Israel rids the earth of Hamas and after we are bringing stability to, to Gaza, this is who should be in charge of implementing this. I don't know if it's going to be a coalition. I don't know if it will be something styled in uh, the form of NATO. I don't know the answer to that, and I do not know if anybody has developed a plan for what would be a way forward for this. What we do know is uh, Gaza, um, that... Um, the government, the Palestinian authority there in Gaza was not successful in developing that coastline. They were not successful in developing an economy. They were not successful in providing a great quality of life and uh, opportunity for education and uh, work and that things have to be done differently. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, last question, Senator. We've got two minutes left. Do you have any time limit on supporting Israel and how long it needs uh, to take to get rid of Hamas? And it could take months. I mean, literally six, seven months to destroy all the tunnels because they're being as careful as they can not to take civilian lives and innocent lives. But it's going to take a while. Do you think there's any time limit in your head? I I don't uh, have a time limit on that. I think the success we want to see is, first of all, ridding uh, the region of Hamas, ridding the world of Hamas. We also want to deal with Iran, you know, and that $6 billion that went to Iran as a, a, a ransom payment, the $10 billion Biden is talking about freeing up from the Iraq oil sales, Um, freeing that money for Iran, that money needs to go into rebuilding Israel because what we do know is Iran is the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. So as we deal with Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis who are out there striking at our, our troops and our positioning in the region, what we need to do is, uh, sanction Iran's oil sales, uh, and we need to free that money from Iran and use it for reconstruction in Israel. Thank you, Senator Blackburn. I, I, I'm glad to hear that. That's good news, and good luck in getting a resolution for our military officers who've been in limbo for nine months now, sometimes ten months. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Senator Tom Cotton represents the great state of Arkansas. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back. Good to have you. Good morning, Hugh. It's good to be back on with you. A belated happy Thanksgiving to you and your listeners and an early Merry Christmas. Thank you. Let me begin with Peter Baker's tweet of uh, about three minutes ago, summarizing a New York Times article this morning. Biden administration warns Israel 
that it must fight more surgically and avoid further mass displacement of Palestinian in its war against Hamas to avoid a humanitarian crisis that overwhelms the world's ability to respond. I can't even believe that. Can you imagine that during our battle in Mosul or during our battles in Japan and Germany, Senator Cotton? Yeah, the Biden administration should shut its eye hole. You, uh, Israel should bounce the rubble in Gaza. That's what it takes to destroy Hamas's infrastructure and its tunnel network and kill all of its leaders and its fighters. Uh, and like you said, of course, we didn't hold ourselves to this standard in World War II. Nobody was wringing their hands about getting humanitarian aid into Nazi Germany or Imperial Japan. And in, uh, over the span of just a couple nights, spring of 1945, we did much, much worse in Dresden and Tokyo than anything Israel's done in Gaza. So the Biden administration, uh, once again, as I predicted, starting on October 8th, is in overdrive trying to pressure uh, the government of Israel not to take the steps necessary. Well, they're, they're in overdrive to be, to be Janus. They want their pro-Israel Democrats to believe that they are 100% with Israel, and they want their pro-Hamas Democrats to be convinced that they're 100% in favor of Palestine. You can't pull that off, Senator. It's yeah. not, yesterday, well, yesterday they got ahead of Israel and said Israel's agreed to the pause, and Israel hadn't agreed to the extension of the pause. They did, but they hadn't when Biden put the pressure on. Yeah, Hugh, I mean, I think you put your finger on an important point. This is not just a matter of, of misguided and muddled thinking about national security, as Joe Biden has been guilty of for 50 years, as Bob Gates, his former colleague in the Obama administration, wrote. This is also about Democratic Party politics. The Democratic Party is tearing itself apart over Israel right now. You have an open revolt uh, of people who work for Joe Biden, not protesters in the streets uh, alone, but people who work for Joe Biden or work for the Democratic National Committee condemning him, writing open letters, condemning his policy, organizing boycotts of the 2024 vote. And that's why Joe Biden seems to put more pressure on Israel than he puts on Hamas. Now, Senator, you've actually led platoons in a combat area of Baghdad during the surge. As you watch how Israel is proceeding, how do you judge their level of caution and their effort to minimize civilian casualty? Well, first off, Hugh, let me express my admiration for the bravery and the skill of the Israeli Defense Forces who are operating in Gaza. It's like nothing I faced in Baghdad in 2006. Some of our soldiers faced some fighting like that in places like Fallujah in 2004, um, but uh, certainly far beyond the intensity of what I faced in Baghdad in 2006. Um, by all indications, the IDF is operating with unusual care and restraint, as they always do, because they they know, their leaders know, their elected leaders know, they are held to uh, an unfair double standard uh, by international uh, opinion. And they've been very deliberate, very careful, uh, not only in uh, trying to minimize civilian casualty, but also to protect their own forces. And I hope to see uh, what's happened in northern Gaza, happened in southern Gaza, which I suspect is where most of the at-large Hamas leaders have escaped to over the last five days. Now, Senator, I just spoke with Ambassador Oren. I spoke with Aviv Redigur earlier about what comes after after Hamas is destroyed and as many of the hostages as possible are freed and rescued. And their answer begins with negatives. Not the U.N., not the Palestinian Authority. Do you have, have you had, let me first ask it, have you received any briefing from the Department of State on their plans for Gaza post-war? Uh, no, I haven't 
personally to you, and I, I don't really care that much about what the Department of State thinks. Tony Blinken is part of the failed Biden administration that led to Hamas and Iran being so emboldened just to commit the atrocities on October 7th or Vladimir Putin invading Russia or the collapse of Kabul. So whatever the State Department proposes, I suspect will be full heart, full headed and uh, unworkable. Uh, now, uh, I, I don't uh, disagree with what Javi Reddy or Michael Oren have said, nor do I think that they sh- that Israel should be restrained until they've come up with some new grand governing coalition for Gaza after Hamas is destroyed. You know, FDR didn't wring his hand about what was going to happen in Germany or Japan after we declared war in those countries. Um, we didn't wring our hands about what was going to happen after we destroyed ISIS. We just knew that those uh, malevolent forces had to be destroyed. So right now, the uh, focus should be on the progress of arms on the battlefield, not some governing coalition after Hamas is destroyed. Well, I've also reminded people that in Japan, we didn't ask the Soviets, and even though they had borne the brunt of World War II casualties, because they didn't fight Japan. So they didn't get to decide what happened to Japan. MacArthur ran Japan. I don't know that Israel has to invite anyone in, except they want to get out, except for security purposes afterwards. And, you know, there are allies of the United States, MBZ, MBS, others, who could step in here. Do you expect that they will? That's possible, Hugh. It's possible that some of the uh, Arab nations uh, will want to play a constructive role here um, in, in a post-war uh, environment. Certainly more constructive than the United Nations play. There'd be no role whatsoever for the United Nations, which is almost genetically anti-Semitic and anti-Israel. Um, and, uh, frankly, the Palestinian authority authority hasn't demonstrated the willingness or ability to govern its own territories anyway. Um, I mean, time and time again, they've had a chance to have their own state, as Joe Biden and Tony Blinken keep saying they still want a two-state solution, despite the failures of the PA and the atrocities of Hamas over the last 20 years, and they always say no. And why is that? It's because their leaders and the Palestinian people in general don't want peace with Israel. They want victory over Israel. And that means, as they say time and again, as people like Rashida Tlaib, the anti-Semitic congresswoman from Michigan, says time and again, from the river to the sea, which means from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, an eliminationist slogan against the Jewish people and their nation. Senator, last question. I don't know that you have any expertise in this, but I'll ask it anyway. There's a statute called the Alien Tort Claims Act, which allows for the victims of torts committed abroad and their families. So it allows foreigners to use American courts to reclaim uh, the money owed by the people who injured them. Do you think that the American courts can help the victims of 10-7 recover anything from any Hamas member, anyone who supports Hamas, anyone who gives them aid and comfort? Do you think that's appropriate? Well, I hope so, Hugh. I have some familiarity with the Alien Tort Claims Act. Uh, and I do think that it could be a viable uh, path, along with a few other statutes or common law standards to help uh, the victims of the October 7th attacks collect, not just against Hamas and its billionaire leadership sitting in their luxury condos in Doha, uh, but also against Hamas's patrons, Iran. And I've been involved in some legislation in Congress that also helps uh, improve the chances of terror victims in the United States and abroad collecting um, against these uh, uh, terrorist, terrorist organizations and Iran, the world's worst terrorist sponsor state. I would love to see Judiciary Committee hold a hearing on that, because I think those Hamas operatives in, in Doha, they've got billions, and those billions ought to belong to the victims of 10-7 and their families. I just, I hope that that is the case. 
Senator Tom Cotton, thank you for joining me this morning. Uh, Keep coming back. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.